0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And here we are with yet another talk by the one and only Terrence McKenna. Before I play it, I would first like to thank James P., who was kind enough to send in a donation to help offset the expenses here in the salon. And, uh, James, your help is very much appreciated. And uh, the other fellow saloner I'd like to thank will have to go nameless for the moment. And why is that, you may ask? Okay, so here I am once again being forced to admit that all of my previous organizational skills acquired in the corporate world are no longer a part of my repertoire and uh, so I can't properly thank the fellow salonor who uh, sent me this recording of uh, Terence McKenna under the teaching tree at the Ojai Foundation and uh, it was recorded in April of 85 by the way uh, for a while it was available on YouTube and so I didn't put it at the, at the uh, top of my list but then I noticed that this series of videos was no longer available on YouTube which tells me that somebody claimed uh, a copyright or something. However, I checked again just a minute ago, and they reappeared. So, uh, hey, go figure, huh? Anyway, uh, some kind person sent me uh, an audio recording of that event, and the first part uh, is what I'm going to play for you today. And by the way, if you happen to be that wonderful person who sent me this recording, please let me know and I'll be sure to thank you personally in my next podcast, uh, which will be a continuation of the talk we're about to hear. And uh, I guess I should warn you that you shouldn't uh, delete your copy of this program if you think you'll ever want to hear it again because uh, I guess there's a chance that some copyright holder will raise his or her head and uh, make me remove this talk too. Anyway, uh, if you think back to my podcast number 169, the talk by Krishnamurti, it was uh, also given under the teaching tree at Ojai. And I should add that uh, Aldous and Maria Huxley also spent uh, a lot of time up in Ojai with Krishnamurti. Uh, They were good friends of his. And uh, I've got several of my more highly evolved friends who live there. So uh, hello, Ojai. But enough of my chatter. Let's uh, join Terence McKenna under the teaching tree, where we'll hear a few stories that we've heard before. But my advice is to listen closely, and uh, maybe we'll hear a new gem or two that we haven't heard before. And uh, I suspect we won't be disappointed, particularly uh, when he begins to talk about death.
1: Human dying, dying artificial, and extraterrestrial. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, This is sort of a nostalgic return. I can't even remember. The last Ojai event was at Camp Shalom. I can't remember. It must have been three years since we were all together here under the teaching tree. In some ways, a lot of water over the dam. In other ways, uh, five minutes ago. Uh, I've just come from two days of speaking in Los Angeles to large audiences which demand a sort of formal intensity that you thankfully relieved me of this morning. (laughs) Uh, I guess uh, the... Well, how many people are familiar with my books or have been to workshops in the past? Is there anybody who's just utterly unfamiliar? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay. Well, so there's we'll work from that benchmark out. Um I never imagined that I would end up Sitting in this position and pontificating on the nature of life and history and global human destiny i uh, I started out simply with an uh, a love of nature. I was uh, persecuted as a child in my physical education classes so I spent a lot of time on my own and I grew up in western Colorado where there is a lot of exposed sedimentary rock and some of it has dinosaurs pressed into it and I could always feel these dinosaurs. Uh, The largest dinosaur ever found was found a few years ago near Delta, Colorado about 30 miles from where I grew up and all the time I was growing up I knew that sucker was out there <laughs> and I, but I could never walk to it uh, if I could have probably my career would have taken a different turn but uh, my interest in fossils I remember I had an uncle who gave me a book when I was about eight years old of fossils and it had one of those charts in the front of it where it shows uh, five billion years and then the last half inch is expanded to the next column and then the last half inch is expanded to the next column and so I saw that human history was a hairline crack at the bottom of the column furthest to the right, and I got the concept of how old, not the universe, but the earth is. And it was a dizzying perspective. The town I grew up in If you read Time magazine, you were persecuted as a left wing intellectual. Uh, The town I grew up in uh, once made it into Ripley's, believe it or not, as a place that had more Christian churches per capita than any town of its size in the United States. This was a town of 1,600 people with 42. Christian churches thriving uh, I, when I was a kid I thought street corners were for churches <laughs> No could have buildings uh, on street corners that weren't churches and uh, I would go up these dry arroyos with my rock pick looking for fossil shells and uh, and dinosaur bones, and uh, and this sort of thing, brachiopods, and in the in the solitude, because I would often not be able to con my little friends into attending me, because they learned quickly that it was hotter out there than decent people could to tolerate, and also I have to confess. I, whenever I invited someone to come along it was with the thought that they would carry back the specimen
2: so they
1: were essentially pack burrows for my fossil expedition and uh, and then I had an uncle who was an old rock hound and he introduced me to the concept of uh, not splitting apart strata to see ancient forms of life, but slicing rocks up and polishing them to reveal the light and the color and sometimes the crystal cavities that were hidden inside them. And so very early on, I got this idea that the surface of things is not where attention should rest that uh you have to as uh ahab tells starbuck and moby dick you have to seek the little lower layer and under the surface of things is uh another reality a reality that reaches in some cases back to the birth of the planet practically or in other cases uh In other dimensions, I had uh, a fixation with meteorites at one time, and butterflies, and rocketry, and all of these things were about uh, a certain thrill, a certain iridescence that could be coaxed out of physical phenomena if you would not just simply dismiss them and pass over them and as a little kid I uh I had very bad eyes I still do but I wear contact lenses but at that time I wore very thick bifocal lenses and my mother's bless her heart she was cut from somehow different cloth than all the people around me uh, read aldous huxley's book the art of seeing which i had an occasion to look at it in the past year and i was amazed how much of my own attitude toward life is contained in this fairly trivial book you know huxley had terrible eyes too and he um discovered the so-called Batesian method of eye exercises and and eye health uh, which at that time we're talking 1954 or so was completely sky blue crackpot type stuff I mean this was the Eisenhower era and um the exercises that I learned when my mother took me to this, uh, I guess you would say, Bethesan, uh therapist, uh, were exercises in attention, in attention to the exterior world. And then the other form of exercise was uh, what the rest of American society wasn't going to encounter for 15 years and then would encounter as Buddhist visualization. But for us, it was just close your eyes and the therapist would create capsules in the air through narrative. And it was an eye exercise. And so it introduced me to the idea of sitting still and watching what's going on behind closed eyelids what fascinated me about the butterflies was the physical iridescence which in the northern hemisphere is fairly rare in butterflies you only get it in these little blue lycaenids that you see fluttering around mud puddles uh, in dry areas i've seen them here but of course in the tropics iridescence uh, becomes a more generalized phenomenon, not only in butterflies, but in beetles as well. And uh, I had the ability to fixate on these things, could spend hours with a single pyrite crystal or a single beetle cart, just turning it over and looking at it. Uh, and then... Uh, At some point, again, Huxley keeps coming back into this, I decided that I would become uh, a writer, not because I loved writing particularly, but uh, because I admired... uh, all the attention the great writers seemed to have heaped upon them which was something that I as a goggle-eyed weirdo was not getting much of and I so then the name Huxley recurred again and I started reading through all of those novels the, the social novels you know Antique and Chrome Yellow After Many a Summer Dies the Swan and all the rest of it Acones, uh, and finally, I came to a work of nonfiction by Huxley, The Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell. This was by now uh, probably 1958. I was 14 years old, and in that book, Huxley, the quintessential. English, academic, establishment, intellectual, describes his uh, confrontations with Mescaline and what it meant to him. And it was fascinating to me because previously all I had ever known or heard about drugs was what I had learned from reading Huxley's novel, Brave New World, which is an uh, a pharmacological dystopia if there ever was one and has lots to say to society today, I think. If you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. If you have read it, you recall that it was a society of people, perfect people, grown in baths, who died early, but who never lost the bloom of their youth. Who were herd minded, driven by advertising, and entirely dependent for their happiness and psychic equilibrium on a drug called Soma. And they had little advertising slogans which they would repeat by rote if anyone displayed inappropriate anger or emotion. A gram is better than a damn, they would display public drug sound proposition there is this same author writing of mescaline and reaching for metaphors drawn from Meister Eckhart St. John of the Cross John Chrysostom comparing the the light falling into the folds of his trousers to the light of Caravaggio and Duccio and Fra Angelico and um, I was amazed, I had never heard such carryings on. Well now, if you go back and look at the the doors of perception, you realize that this was not an extravagant telling of the nature of the psychedelic dimension, it was in fact a fairly conservative rendering, a description of uh, low dose, eyes open, psychedelic voyaging I mean it's been a long long time since I've set a stack of Abram's art books by my left knee before I take a psychedelic but back then that was how it was done and you looked at the visible world well so then around this time there began to be alarmist Uh, articles in the press about the abuse of blue morning glory seeds by some of the more uh, crazed and unassimilated members of uh, American society and I immediately tore out and purchased a couple of packets of blue morning glory seeds and uh, and uh, and then noticed that uh, the leaves imprinted in the fabric of the drapes in the living room all seemed to have little faces and were (laughs) dancing. This was, in fact, clearly the intent of the designer, but something that in all the years of living around these ratty drapes, I had never (laughs) noticed. And then I began to look at everything around me, and discovered that this affinity for looking into things that my rock-hunting, butterfly-collecting uh, habits had instilled in me had become like turbocharged. <laughs> and swimming in the depths of polished stones, ponds, the ditch running down the back of the backyard were myriads. Of world and I went outside and I was looking around at everything and then I I just felt physically overcome my knees basically gave way underneath me and I sat down under a tree and I closed my eyes and my life has never been the same since because they're waiting behind closed eyelids were, uh, you know, ruined cities covered with creeping jeweled lichens and uh, inhabited by shining-eyed creatures that were, I was not sure exactly what, and much, much more. And I just spent a half hour or so literally entranced, in gazing into this unfolding reverie of deserts jungles machines archaeological artifactria machines in orbit around alien worlds all of this stuff and uh, I was Stun. I still am stunned. And that essentially set the compass for my, uh, the rest of my intellectual life. I didn't understand, really, what had happened. In other words, I didn't clearly get it that this was a trip and that it was induced by the psychedelic. I understood something of that, that I thought also it must be unique. It must be my mood, my expectation. Or surely this cannot happen on demand through the simple act of eating morning glory seeds being sold at 35 cents a pack down at the hardware store. Um, And so then I began to ask questions and I quickly discovered it was a mistake. So I went to Huxley and read more carefully, saw that he was working from the earlier of Havelock Ellis, Weir Mitchell, um, Fitzhugh Ludlow. Uh, It turned out that this whole tradition, albeit an underground tradition in Western intellectual or aesthetic sense, Based around the perturbation of consciousness with substances, uh, Coleridge comes to mind as an example. And, uh, you may know this poem, Kubla Khan. Kubla Khan was written in a flash, basically, based on an opium reverie. Coleridge was, uh, an aficionado laudanum, which was a a tinctured form of opium that had a great vogue in the 19th century. Well, I knew nothing about opium or laudanum or the style of the 19th century English intelligentsia, but in the lines of Kublai Khan, I could feel this same siren song iridescence that had been in the pyrite crystals, in the butterfly wings, uh, in the beetle bodies. Uh, Here, let's go out on a limb and really take a chance here. In Sanadu did Kublai Khan, a state dome, decree where out the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers girdled round and there blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion the sacred river ran. And it goes on and on and then it says, It was a miracle of rare device a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. And that notion, not the sunny pleasure dome itself, but the notion of a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice introduced me to the concept of what's called in alchemy, coincidencia positorum, where two things which are mutually exclusive are juxtaposed in a way which creates a shock in the mind, a poetic shock that is then potentially memorable. Years later, I used this effect to uh, title my books. So that's why you get The Invisible Landscape, True Hallucination. See, this is uh, all... Hideously contrived. <laughs> well, eventually, and after many adventures too painful to recall, I ended up at Berkeley in the fall of 1965, which was what an incredibly, probably the most together thing I've ever achieved with my life in terms of me because I was neither early nor late I was not ten miles off or a thousand miles off I was dead on I was right at the very center of the flowering of the cultural revolution that is now vilified and fondly recalled as the 1960s and uh, I was living in a ratty room house in San Francisco that summer before going over to Berkeley, and there was a guy living across the hall from me who uh, replaced all the white light bulbs in his apartment with red light bulbs
2: and painted
1: his windows black and played the main chords of freight train on his slack guitar over and over again <laughs> and uh, he went on to glory as uh, Barry Melton the <clears throat> lead guitarist of Country Joe and the Fish and I didn't know it but at the time they were in the studio laying down the tracks for uh, electric music for the mind and the body, which was one of the defining freak albums of that era. And he introduced me to uh, the joys of cannabis and further to something called Sandoz LSD, which was uh, going around in these little tiny double-O capsules and uh, it was as if the previous Morning Glory vision had now been lifted to a whole other level of intensity. And everyone around me was undergoing these kinds of experiences. And there was a sense of incredibly accelerated change. You could palpably feel the acceleration of change seemed to be in the water, in the air. Uh, once I moved to Berkeley, I I noticed that the large billboard that they changed for Telegraph Avenue every 30 days contained cryptic messages uh, that were inevitably addressed to me and my group. Uh, uh, in short, serious boundary, dissolution and category and scramblement was creeping into my uh, mental universe. And then, after about six months of this, I had a very strange friend who lived in Palo Alto. He, uh, he still is my great inspiration. I wish I could coax him into public display because he's the real Terrence McKenna. But if you're the real Terrence McKenna, you have too much good taste to ever do what I do. So, uh, but he came to me. His, his style was to, to get there first, whatever it was to do it to reject it and to be absolutely contemptuous of it by the time anybody else (laughs) even arrived at the scene of the crime so in early 1967 he came to my house in berkeley one rainy february night and he said uh, something you might be interested in and i said what's that and he said uh, this is a material that has been boosted from an army research project being run down at SRI and someone managed to get a 50 gallon drum of this material out of the inventory without anybody knowing and I said what is it? and he said it's called DMT and I said it's a psychedelic drug right and he said right and I said how long does it last and he said three minutes and I said no problem bring it on (laughs) because after all I had been assaulted by Life magazine on the subject of LSD and I had gotten that under my belt and I was by now uh, relatively sophisticated about cannabis I figured there were probably no more frontiers to cross. And uh, so we sat down then and there and uh, did it. And about 15 seconds after choking up on this stuff, I found myself plunged into an elf nest somewhere on the other side of the universe. In other words, there were, um, and thank God no one fills in for me because they know it so well. Uh, (laughs) Jewel self-dribbling basketballs. Did I get it right? (laughs) Jewel self-dribbling basketballs that came bounding toward me from all corners of this domed, underground space. Well, I had been used to hallucinations, acceleration of thought, funny ideas, strange insights, hysterical waves of giggling, so forth and so on. I had never seen anything like what I was now face-to-face with. And also, whatever this substance was, it didn't affect me it didn't affect my perception of who I was in other words it seemed to me that the drug wasn't working it was simply that the world had disappeared and been replaced by something else and I was still who I had been a few moments before except now I was fairly alarmed by what had just happened to the architecture and geography of uh, Southern Telegraph Avenue and these Uh, these things, there was an overwhelming sense of affection, involvement, a sense that I hadn't experienced since being six years old and being released on Christmas morning to run out to the Christmas tree. And there was a sense of childlike innocence under conditions of extraordinary alienness. unfoldment and just I was boggled the mind boggled I at last understood the real meaning of this uh, new cliche at that time and these things were making objects with their voices they were singing in this unearthly crystalline punning elf chatter kind of language but it was not something simply heard it was something which i could see i could see syntax unfolding like ribbons being spewed out of machines shooting across my visual field rolling into balls condensing as objects with rotating crystalline facets and machined interiors of gold and ivory and crystallite and these objects were themselves emitting strange singing language like noises and the whole thing was happening at an enormous speed almost like a Bugs Bunny cartoon run backwards at about three times ordinary speed. Well, I barely had time to take all of this in and, you know, assure myself that I wasn't dying before it collapsed the way A tent collapses, the way an ice cream cone melts, the way an erection disappears, the way an investment goes bad. It just was gone. And my friend, I was sitting there, I opened my eyes, and my friend said, so what do you think?
2: And I
1: was, uh, I was uh, stunned. I've never actually seen it hit anybody quite as hard as it hit me. For about 15 minutes, all I could say was, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. You call that that a drug? (laughs) You, You must be nuts. It, drugs don't do that. I mean, drugs speed you up, slow you down, make you fall down, stuff like that. This is no drug. It's magic. It masquerades as a drug. It's a doorway into another world. I kept having the image of Aladdin's lamp, my favorite fairy tale. And I felt like Aladdin. You know, you buy something in a junk shop, you take it home, you try to clean it up. The next thing you know, a flame a mile high pours out and demands to do your bidding. That was the impression I had. And it's the impression I still have. That must have been early nineteen sixty six, sixty six, seventy six. Eighty-six. What is it? 36 years ago? That's not possible. 26 years ago, nothing has particularly changed. Nothing has ever surpassed it. And for me, that was the moment that set my auto compass for life. I mean, I said, this I must understand not only did my mother not tell me and my father not tell me but Aldous Huxley never told me and neither did John of the Cross and neither did Meister Eckhart all those people were apparently flying at a lower altitude than I, 19 year old brat in ratty rented room have been able to achieve in the last 15 minutes Uh, And so then I began to look for this, or for some trace of it, in the history of uh, uh, human philosophy, in the history of art, in um, ethnography, everywhere. And I really didn't find it. And I really still don't find it, except there are certain faint, faint footprints in the blowing sand of human experience that if you know, if you've seen the vision, you can follow these footprints back to something like this source. First of all, I, I went to the library. No, None of the heads that I knew could make any sense out of this at all. For them, LSD defined the top of the ladder. Well, this, with this stuff, LSD and being local PA meeting down, seem to be two states of mind merged together on some horizon of straightness. So I went to the library and began reading more intensely in a more focused fashion, and I learned that in South America, there were five people who apparently utilized plants that had this in uh, it. Now, at that time, this was 67, this was new information that had arrived uh, in the domain of, of botanical scholarship. Really, in the previous five to ten years, through the work of people like Richard Evan Schultes at Humboldt and uh, William Safford and other people, had uh, described this chemical being present in these aboriginal intoxicants. So far as I could tell, no academic had ever done it because no description matched what I had experienced. And when I discussed this with my friend who had brought me to this place, he said that he felt that probably uh, it was impossible to attain these kinds of concentrations outside the laboratory. And that meant, if true, that these shamanic uh, practitioners and societies that were utilizing this were utilizing it, but that they themselves had no real awareness of what it was potentially like when concentrated through modern analytical and laboratory techniques. So I, uh, it, it really wasn't a choice. I mean, the, I, I mean, I guess that's what it's like when you get your calling. It's just a little hard for me to imagine that, uh, you know, being a CTA or a city planner or something like that could seize you by the ears with the kind of intensity that this sees me. I mean, I said, I've got to understand this stuff. This is the most amazing thing. And the and the second most amazing thing was that nobody seemed to know about it. I mean, I couldn't understand why there weren't 11-inch-high headlines on every newspaper on the flat saying, you know, doorway to hyperspace discouraged <laughs> elf negotiations Proceeding," uh, something like that. No, apparently it was a, a, a private mystery or uh, known but to a very few, and I'm immediately after coming down was seized by an absolutely messianic desire to expose other people to this and see what they said because it just seemed so important to share it. So uh, that's basically what I've been doing ever since and trying to draw conclusions. Trying to understand what is this number one? How is it that it can coexist with the world of George Bush and not uh, be discussed or not be part of the mix of social concerns? I mean, after all. We're a society where people jump out of airplanes on weekends because their lives are so boring and empty. Well, then, if you think jumping out of an airplane is a thrill to write home about, you should try this stuff. No one would jump out of an airplane if they had DMT on their menu. Uh, But no, apparently it isn't about that. Well, then I, I came to feel that it it is, and I still sometimes offhandedly refer to it like this, that it is secret. It is not a secret. It is the secret. There is a secret, and this is it. It is the secret that the world is not only not the way you think it is it's that the world the way the world is is a way that you can't think it is because you simply do not have the imaginative capacity to conceive of such overwhelming peculiarity and uh, how this secret is able to coexist (laughs) with the rest of mundane reality maintain its integrity and not become the object of pogrom religion hysteria and repression is uh, part of the mystery of what the secret is you see a secret is not something untold it's something which can't be told and even as i sit here i realize that I'm obliquely approaching it. No matter how weird I say it is, no matter what scintillating metaphor I create to attempt to beguile you into imagining what you can't imagine, I'm perfectly aware that I'm falling short of the goal. I'm creating a symbol of what it is. But frankly, words fail. And I'm a word kind of guy. So then, uh, the rest of my life can be basically poured into a nutshell. It's just been uh, a lot of wandering around in various uh, fringy places, talking to a lot of fringy people, and trying to figure out what is the real importance of this, for me personally, because that's where I'm living, obviously, And for everybody else, because I assume that there is absolutely nothing extraordinary about me. I didn't have these experiences because I'm in the lineage of Ramana Maharshi or some malarkey like that. I had that experience because I'm a human being. And every human being can have this experience. Uh the only analogy I can make to it is sexuality I notice that no one here seems to be having sex at the moment but uh, we all are shaped by it probably this is something so taboo and not necessarily scripted into your biological functioning the way sex is so taboo that you can go from birth to the grave and never encounter it. Not only can you do that, but most people do. And throughout history, most people have. They never had an inkling. You know, they may have set armies marching, they may have launched empires, they may have built fantastic uh, uh, inventions painted amazing paintings created phenomenal works of literature but they were wet behind the ears when it comes to the full spectrum of reality because without this in the picture half the world is missing well so then how to come to terms with this what is it the answer is Who knows? We're not doing a very good job of coming to terms with this. Uh, Governments invade against drugs of all sorts, but largely because these things uh, are uh, sources of difficult-to-tax revenue. It's not the metaphysical concern for the health of your teleological structures that drives uh, the government to repress these things. It's simply the wish not to be chiseled on the <laughs> So, uh, this, there it is, sideways to the rest of life. Huxley once said of the psychedelic experience generally that it was what he called a gratuitous grace he said it is neither necessary nor sufficient for salvation. In other words, salvation can be attained without these things, whatever salvation is. Uh, y- discovering, using, and exploring these things does not guarantee you a place in heaven either, whatever a place in heaven means. However, this is... Uh, a part of this world. Well, it's hard to put it into words exactly, especially when you try to do it for the first time. Obviously, the difference between a living person and a dead person, there is a way of thinking about that where you would say the difference is a chemical one. In one case, metabolism is going on. In the other case, not. I I be, am beginning to think that This narrowing of our conscious focus into three dimensions for survival purposes that I mentioned a few minutes ago may have actually cut us off not only from where the game will be next month or or, uh, who stole the chicken, but it also may have cut us off from contact with the after-death world. Because it has no efficacy in the, the very nitty-gritty blood and muscle problem of day-to-day survival. And that what we have discovered in DMT is literally a chemical doorway to the bargain, And that this, I think, is an even more confounding notion than the notion that we are being... Ceremonially managed by Zeta Reticulans or something like that. I mean, after all, if that were the case, it would probably just be one of many programs of social manipulation that are administered by some hideous bureaucracy somewhere beyond Agal and. Uh, there's careerism and blunders and budget overruns and, in other words, it sort of comes back down into. Uh, that's what, it, what the problem I have with all extraterrestrial scenarios is: the extraterrestrial seems so much like ourselves. Uh, I think probably it's that we are we have found the pharmacological key to the bargain and that this is going to overturn civilization so completely that we might as well just call an end to it and recess the meeting. uh, And if you ask shamans about this, you say, you know, what is this all about? They, They will tell you, well, we do all our work through ancestor magic. Well, ancestor... It's a very sanitized term because not too many people when they hear the word ancestor realize that we're talking dead people here. So when a (laughs) shaman tells you he works with the ancestors, he's he's saying he works with dead people. Well, if that's the case, then uh, we are close to meeting in a rational sense. The answer to one of the questions that has driven us most buggy throughout history, which is, is there continuity of something after the body dissolves? And I am the last person to ever carry this message into society. I was raised Catholic I rejected it. At age 14, Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean Genet, Friedrich Nietzsche, these were my gods. And I felt, you know, that moral responsibility, existential honesty, demands that we put aside the cheerful fairy tales of more naive levels of culture. And that anybody who wants to talk to you about the dear departed and all that, is, you know, in the grip of menopausal mysticism or something, or just hasn't carried out a rational analysis of what gives. Now, I think, you know, these religions have all made hay out of, and hash, I might add, out of their uh, imagined franchise of the after death world because they use it to beat you on the head with some moral laundry list of do's and don'ts that's very dear to them and it can be anything as nuts as that you shouldn't be pork to who knows what you know on all sides of the world and has only been thrown into question by the scientific uh, high-tech democracies in the last 500 years or so, and for them only among a secular educated elite, the premise that is that there is something that persists beyond life. And I think that uh, part of the uh, profligate irresponsibility of modern life arises from the fact that we don't think we have dues to pay. We don't think... We think there's an easy way out and that you could be a jerk and then just become food for worms and nobody will ever get on your case about it. And so moral relativism has come into play. But if in fact we are securing in some form the notion that the human personality or some portion of it persists after death and that there is an ecology of souls and that we must in some sense share this planet with them because after all when you smoke DMT, you don't go anywhere physically you simply see your nearby environment from a different dimension through different eyes then it means that we represent a tiny minority of the human beings who care about this planet we the living are just a tiny slice of who cares and who is active in the situation and somehow we are being uh, through chance which I don't believe in or through design which seems everywhere around us We are being brought up short and told that uh, in order for the Earth to survive, we must join everyone else in this other place. And that it is not to be conceived of as dissolution, it is to be conceived of as disembodied. This is the only thing I can figure out that is going on. There is some kind of project underway to transfer the lump of living into the realm of the grateful (laughs) dead. And uh, the anxiety that we feel about death is the anxiety is an anxiety born essentially of ignorance. And this ignorance is understandable because we have suppressed, repressed and denied shamanism the leadership role that it should have in metaphysics of all sorts. And so now, we're about to become extinct. And uh, you can like it or you cannot like it. You can decry it as the greatest tragedy ever to befall us or this planet, although I suspect the planet will heave an enormous sigh of relief but there is a perspective in which it can actually be seen as progress that we are all at once going to transit into this bardo realm now this may not be it, it may not be a simple die-off it may be that somehow a dialogue can be set up with these um, souls or their representatives or whatever they are in this other place, and that a world can be established which is neither quite theirs nor quite ours. In other words, that the difference between being alive and being dead, which seems to us fairly fundamental, could in fact turn out to be fairly minor and erasable, or the boundary could be moved from where it is to somewhere else. Uh, We, this stuff is hackle-raising in its weirdness, but if you're going to be true to the content of the experience, then I think you're pushed in these kinds of directions and the, the attractor at the end of history that seems to be pulling the human world certainly if not all of space and time into its domain is uh, in the act of realizing itself Going to obliterate the kind of distinctions that we have grown used to, excuse me, even on such fundamental issues as life and death. That's the grandest conception that I've been able to come up with, and it doesn't require friendly, altruistic extraterrestrials flying in from fatal Jews, and it doesn't uh, involve nanotechnological downloading of everybody into a gold deterbium cube buried on the backside of the moon
2: <laughs> and
1: it doesn't uh, involve the human enterprise simply becoming a, a layer in shale somewhere in the strata of the paleontological record of life on this planet. It is, you know, a fitting denouement For the mess that we have wandered into it does require unlimbering of the imagination to come to terms with this because we are in great denial over the possibility that the world could really be transforming itself I mean about as far as most of us can go without getting metaphysically uncomfortable is to embrace recycling and population control But I doubt that such cheerful uh, diddling with the machinery will be able to swerve us from our path. I think, uh, like it or not, we are going into a world that we literally, as we sit here, cannot conceive of, a world so different from ordinary reality that to. Discuss whether we will be alive or dead in that world is mere quibbling. There's one point I wanted to clar- clarify real quick. I didn't see this launching of the alien psychedelic explore templates as a bureaucratic enterprise. I almost always envisioned it as a real provisional
2: underground thing, to be done by a small minority of shamans in a, in a you know desperate
1: hope to somehow you know propagate their 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 origins you mean alien child yeah, yeah. it could be that I, I, I think I, I sense a crisis in the physics of the matrix itself in other words I think that this is not only happening to human beings I'm serious when I say you know there's only 20 years of history left and we still have half of it to do We're going to have to do some pretty fast stepping. I mean, what we took 50,000 years to do, we must now do in 20 years. Uh, I I think that, that space, and time, and the physical body, and the planet, and that everything is essentially some kind of an illusion, it's not real. What is real, what is truly bedrock, of, and I guess this comes close to being of the Buddhist position, this is all provisional, this is not what the universe is. The universe is something else, you know, the Buddhists have a doctrine that uh, if a single person will attain enlightenment, then the illusion will collapse instantly. All beings will be sucked into the post-enlightenment state. And the illusion of space and time, of becoming an entity, will all be obviated at the snap of a finger. Well, we tend to disbelieve this because no matter how metaphysical we are, or we may even call ourselves Buddhists, we really believe that Andromeda is two hundred and fifty thousand light years away. And we can't conceive of a light year, but we actually believe that what the scientists tell us. And yet, my God, when you start uh, when you start carrying all out a critique of modern science, you cannot believe what fluff this stuff is, is built on. I heard. A, Analogy recently, which I thought was very interesting, our entire picture of the, dis- of the so-called distant universe is built up by the science of radio telescopy. The use of radio telescopes to study deep space. This science has been in existence since about 1950 if you were to take all the radio signals that have been analyzed by uh, radio astronomy since 1950 and characterize them as energy it would be the amount of energy that is released by a cigarette ash falling a distance of two feet This is the thinness of the data out of which we have created these incredibly uh, grandiose conceptions of what is happening. Uh, Science is just whistling past the graveyard. Don't forget that the telescope is about 500 years old this year. So to believe, you know, that we, that the story science tells us is true, when we can't understand the mathematics, we cannot build the instruments ourselves, we cannot analyze the data. I mean, we are uh, under the thumb of a priesthood, more uh, domineering, more removed from the ordinary concerns of ordinary people than any priesthood of any religion in the past ever was. I think we should hold all that um, in abeyance. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's not possible to tell whether it's true or not. One thing psychedelics will do for you, for sure, is to convince you that what's real is what I call the felt presence of immediate experience. That's what's real. You know, what you think, what you feel, what you see now is what's real. Even your own memories are so shifting and elusive and subject to psychological transformation based on your own inner and unconscious dynamics and pinks. That to believe what somebody else is telling you about the temperature of bagel juice or something like that or the charge of the top quark means you're just you've moved off into some kind of private Idaho. Crazy people <laughs> rave about stuff like this, but I think people who are rooted in uh, a good philosophical method. Will not give much credence to anything out of reach of their good right arm. And the psychedelic experience is an experience. You know, I didn't present you with a set of tensor equations or a tape of, uh, of uh, electromagnetic data interpreted through the fiat of a fishy formula. We're talking experience here. And this experience, if made commiserate with ordinary experience, I think leads to the conclusion that this is, I said this the other night, um, this is as dead as you'll ever be. This is as low as you can go. This is as confined a mode of existence as it's possible to know. And it's all up. From here, folks. It's a kind of Gnostic vision. Uh, it, it sees uh, our present circumstance as uh, the low rung of a ladder of transformational um, distillation. And, uh, you know, we come from we know not where. I mean, we have, yes, the details on the fertilization of the egg by the sperm and so forth and so on. But where the form comes from, we don't know. This is the mystery of morphogenesis. And then where the form goes to, we do not know. I mean, I, I now think that the proper way to think about biology is biological objects. Plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, amoebas, and, and human beings. Biological objects are hyperdimensional objects. You can tell that that's true because whenever you. What is the sine qua non of a biological object? Meaning, uh, what is the thing it must have to be biological? It must metabolize. That's the essence of life. The form is stable, but the matter and the energy which compose the form are in constant cycling. Uh, the form stabilizes, but the energy is flowing through it, which stabilizes it. Well, when we use phrases like cycling through it, flowing through it, these are words which imply a temporal dimension. If you have a chair, and you cut into it, it doesn't bleed, it doesn't squirm away, it doesn't begin to rot and fall over. If you cut into a, a living object, it undergoes all kinds of changes. This is because you have destroyed one of the dimensions necessary for its manifestation, the temporal dimension. The living body has a relationship to time which the chair doesn't have. The chair is born along in the stream of time. The biological object is made of time itself as much as it's made of space and matter. And so, really, what birth is, is the descent of this mysterious entity called the form into matter. It clothes itself with matter and energy through a process of gestation, unfoldment, separation from the environment of gestation and unfoldment, which is the mother's body. And then it has an autonomous existence. But what is generally true true of all life in the phylogenetic in the, I'm sorry, in the ontogenetic expression, what's true is that it has finite duration. Everything dies. The individual dinosaur, the individual elephant, the individual human being, they die. That means that the form eventually withdraws itself from the domain of matter and energy, and it then... Presumably exists as it existed before having added whatever adumbrations three-dimensional Experience has given to it. So I've come to see the body as basically the placenta of the soul Mm -hmm. and You know that's a way of thinking about it that makes dying not so terrifying. I mean it's as terrifying as smoking PMT, but it's nothing to claw the walls about. The body is the placenta of the soul for the individual. Well then it's just a short step to realizing that we are now called upon as a species to abandon the body. The body uh, is the, pl- the collective body is the collective placenta of the species and you don't do a war dance around the placenta. Once it's served its function, which is to bring the forming fetus to the point where it can exist and sustain itself in the dimension for which it is destined in the case of ordinary birth, that's three dimensional space and time, In the case of this metaphor, it's the hyperspace beyond space and time. Once we are ready to exist in that dimension, it's time to undergo the journey down the birth canal and bury the placenta under the old apple tree and forget it and move on. And, uh, you know, I grant you the, the analogy isn't perfect. I mean, where is the midwife? Where is the waiting bathymet? But perhaps the answer to that is the midwife is waiting in these intimations of the of the friendly alien presence. It may be an aspect of humanness that awaits us just over the great divide, and so we are going to have to. Uh, you know, I think you probably now at every talk I give, I make the analogy to birth, that this is what we in the 20th century are experiencing. The 20th century is analogous to the birth canal of human history. And so, you know, the wonderful swim in the Amniotic Ocean is over the the fool's paradise of of uh, the people's life is ending now the walls are literally closing in we can't get enough oxygen we're using up our food the walls are strangling us there's no room on this planet for all of us and for us it's a catastrophe but I imagine when a woman goes into transition, that the fetus, if it's not a metaphysician, must be fairly alarmed by the situation. You must just say, well, I guess this is it. It's all over. I'm going to be strangled, suffocated, and simultaneously choked to death in this situation. It would take a far-seeing fetus indeed. To embrace the journey down the birth canal as the road toward, uh, you know, a split-level ranch house in Malibu, <laughs> if you play your cards right. Surely that gets the idea across. Yeah.
2: Could you say more about your content of your journey? Would I was really fascinated
1: um, and it seemed like there were some qualities to it that I wanted to know hear more about well uh, sure um, DMT if you take it orally is destroyed by enzymes in your gut so it has to be smoked unless you have a chemical strategy for inactivating those enzymes. So, assuming you smoke it, it comes on in about 30 seconds. And if you're a leather-lunged ha you can maybe get it in one swell foot. But it takes most people about three hits. And... Uh, The first thing you notice is that um, it's as though all the air has been drawn out of the room you're in, suddenly the colors come forward, and the edges sharpen. This is really happening. It has uh, an extraordinary effect at low doses on visual acuity, so does psilocybin. And then you close your eyes. You feel very peculiar. A kind of anesthesia sweeps through your body, a kind of numbing and yet a sense of a building bubble of energy. Uh, You close your eyes and after a few seconds you see forming in front of you what I call the chrysanthemum. It's a floral mandala usually in yellow and orange most people say and it's, it's slowly turning, it's like a wall but it's a hallucination but it's right here, right in front of you and you watch it for about 15 seconds, if it stabilizes you need one more hit but what usually happens is that after about 15 seconds of contemplating this thing It's as though suddenly whatever was holding you back, the cable is cut and you are just propelled through this membrane and there is, you hear a sound like a bread wrapper being crumpled, a cellophane bread wrapper being crumpled and thrown away or the crackling of flames. This is, according to a friend of mine, your radio intellect key exiting the anterior fontanel at the top of your head. <laughs> but he could be wrong. But whatever it is, and then you hear a tone, which is it could be reproduced on a synthesizer. It's that. you know, and but it keeps going and becomes hypersonic supersonic, subsonic I don't know uh, and you, there is a sense of a, literally a membrane is ruptured and now you're there and what happens to me is the first thing I hear is a cheer a yell of greeting it's on the on their second album, the Pink Floyd have a song in which they sing the the gnomes have a new way to say hooray. Well, you break into this gnome nest and it's a very specifically characterized place. It is domed. It's indirectly lit not brightly lit but soffited lighting of some sort it's comfortable and but but all of that is hard to focus on and relatively inconsequential because the main thing that's happening is these things come bounding towards you like greyhounds and there are many of them these jeweled, self dribbling transforming basketballs which look like iridescent electric radiolaria or something I mean they are diatomaceous neon transforms made of syntax or some damn thing like that and they come towards you and the, the you have to deal with yourself in this situation because most people and my reaction is absolute amazement complete hysterical disbelief i mean you just say you know my god what is happening it's it comes so quickly that it isn't like a drug where you know you deep breathe and you close your eyes and you wait for an hour and you slowly summon it out of its crevice. It's not like that. It's like you were struck by lightning. In fact, some people think they have been struck by lightning, that they never got to the drug, that just as they raised it to their lips, they were struck by lightning, or a jet fighter fell out of the sky or something. And then you have to ask yourself, is this okay? because it's so radical and it happens so quickly and your eyes are wide open and you don't see anything recognizable three-dimensional space the room you were in everything it's gone instead this place and, and then they tell you they try to reassure you although they're not very reassuring what they say is don't give way to amazement don't abandon yourself to wonder, basically, don't be a jerk and a rube, you know, Uh, pay attention, pay attention to what is happening, and then they proceed to do a very intense form of teen teaching they are um, bounding up they present themselves they also do this weird thing where they jump into your chest and then they jump back out so you're having this sucking in and out of your body thing they jump in and out of your chest and they are singing and squeaking and squealing in some kind of elf glossolalia which you can see This is very important. They speak a language which you look at, you don't hear, and they make objects which are like super puns of some sort in that the object is not one thing. It is somehow several things simultaneously play a pun attains its effect by being simultaneously more than one thing. But these are not verbal puns. These are objectified puns in three-dimensional space, and they're funny. And the whole thing is pervaded by uh, the word zany is what I use. It's a form of humor. It's a form of merriment. But you can't entirely relax around it Because you can't entirely be sure that you're getting the joke, (laughs) Uh, so it's like it's a humor with an edge to it. And uh, they are showing you these jeweled—I've compared them to Fabergé eggs—and when they show you these things, you you can tell by looking at them that if you could bring a single one of these objects, no larger than an orange into this world it would end the debate I mean all you would have to do is show it to somebody and they would say that's impossible but yet it's happening so therefore my reality is dissolving I mean it's somehow to gaze upon these objects is to be forever corrupted for ordinary consciousness make them with their voices these objects are quasi-alive. The objects themselves can sing and make other objects. So you're just being, you're like in this um, a cross between Santa's workshop, Tiffany's, and the basement of the Metropolitan Museum, and they're offering you all the This time, I've somehow stretched the thread too tightly, and now I'm never going to make my way back. And they're saying, no, no, can that, that's not what's happening. This is what's happening, pay attention, look, look, look. And then it just fades very suddenly, and they sense it coming. They have urgency because they know the window is tremendously narrow. And in the final moments, in some cases, I recall they 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 literally it re, it recedes away, or you pull away from it, and they say, "Deja vu, deja vu," <laughs> and and then you 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 open your eyes, and you're in the room you left. It's like a thousand mics of LSD or something. You are more loaded than you have ever been in your life. And you immediately proclaim, My God, I'm completely down. And, you know... The walls are rubbery, the Persian carpet is crawling around, your friends have faceted faces and look like they just climbed out of one of Billy Myers' starships, but you're absolutely completely down, you accept this as ordinary, it's all you can do to keep from kissing the good earth, because where you were was so much removed from that that there is no comparison. Well, now, after doing this a number of times, because the first time you do it, the goal is pretty much to live through it. I mean, it's like being shot out of a. I read, I think it was Tim Leary's metaphor. He said it's like being shot out of a cannon with Baroque barreling and afterwards people want you to draw the barreling when what you were trying to do was live through the experience. But after you do it many, many times and 15, it depends on how bright you are and how able to resist freaking out you are. uh, My impression became and this is astonishing to me based on what I've said so far this is someone someone very strange it's someone's idea of a reassuring environment for a human being this place you end up which is the weirdest place you could ever conceive of or imagine has been specifically designed by someone to be as mundane, ordinary and like this world as they could possibly make it not only that the impression that I have is, the vibe of this place, if you will, is, it's a nursery. It's a playpen, in fact, and these toys, these things, these elves, are nothing more than the equivalent of stringing a string of colored plastic objects over a bassinet to teach you spatial relationships and hand-eye coordination you are briefly in uh, a nursery for receiving human beings who have just crossed over from hyperspace well imagine if all you knew about this world was a nursery and a maternity ward or a home Somewhere, and you're trying to deduce the nature of the universe from a 30 second visit to a human nursery that's the kind of position we're in and I think that is what gave me the the notion that this has to do with the after death state apparently one, the soul is literally being born into this other dimension and the soul is not it's exactly like this world. When you're born into this world, you're just a little worm of a thing, you know? You have to be held by your mother. You have to be swaddled. You have to be kept away from bright lights, breezes, men with cigars, and so forth. And the soul, as it transits into that place, it, you immediately meet the extended existence of your soul in an entirely new domain. Am. you mean stayed in that yeah. place no um, and it seems to me unlikely that anyone would because interesting about the MP is that it has uh, it occurs naturally in the human brain we all make it all the time And so, in a sense, this is not a drug at all. This is a human metabolite that you're getting a tremendous overdose of. But the fact that it occurs naturally in the human brain means that you have chemical pathways, biosynthetic pathways, that uh, can deal with it. That's why it lasts so short a time. One way of talking about the toxicity of a drug is to ask the question, how long before you feel perfectly normal after taking this drug? If you have a drug that 24 or 48 hours after you take it, you still have lower back pain and you're lying in warm baths and avoiding ringing telephones and don't want to talk to anybody, that's a toxic drug. I don't care whether it's coke, methadone, or LSD, you shouldn't. That's not good. DMT, if... uh, 10 minutes, within 10 to 15 minutes after taking it, you not only are down, you can't tell you did it. There's no residual, no lingering headache, no dryness of mouth, no dilated pupil, nothing. It's like you took an ice cube and hurled it into a blast furnace, and then you went looking for it 15 minutes later. It's not to be found. It ain't there. Well, this is amazing, because this is the strongest psychedelic there is. You'd think that you'd have to put ice packs on your head for a week after this and instead it's completely gone. So... Rupert and I, in talking about this, he developed the idea of what he called a necrotic compound. He thinks that DMT, that at death you're, you flood your system with DMT, that this this is what these pathways exist for, and that it sets you up for for dying, and that uh, if you can and and. I gave DMT once to a Tibetan Lama who, a very old one, not one of these alcoholic fundraising lamas, the real thing, the real thing. And the uh, guy took it like a man. He was probably 92. And afterwards he said, it's the lesser light." He said, you can't, he said, if you go further, you can't return. That's the limit. Beyond that, there is no fail-safe. And he was perfectly matter-of-fact about it, and I took him at his word. I mean, if anybody should have known, this was the dude. And um, I think it's a tremendous argument for hope And, you see, it's not only an argument for hope, it means that if we could get the, well the infantile, shit-brained, drug-phobic yahoos sent back to wherever it is that they are going to be sent to practice their family values, then we could actually do significant research and find out what's going on here. It's an object of legitimate research. We don't have to genuflect in front of this like it's a religious mystery and will always be unknowable. In principle, what we need to do is you explore this dimension the way you explore any unknown dimension. You send people of great courage and descriptive uh, skill in, and with their notebooks, their telescopes, their tape recorders, or whatever is the equivalent for this job, and then you find out what it is. And uh, I think that the you know the destiny of the species may be um, spun into this. It may not be it may be that this transition into hyperspace is not as inevitable as I previously assured you. It may be that we have to do something on this side. We have to meet them halfway through the mountain. They're boring toward us. We have to alert ourselves to the fact that a tunnel is possible and then get kraken, you know, with dynamite, which is an analogum for DMT.
2: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So here's a little synchronicity that happened uh, just after I finished listening to this talk for the first time. I decided to take a break and do some light reading before writing my notes to introduce this program. And the book I picked up is the uh, latest Dan Brown novel, The Lost Symbol. And as I was opening it to the first page, I was still uh, thinking about some of the interesting things that Terrence had to say about what may lie beyond the grave for us. And then I read the first two sentences of uh, Brown's book, which read, The secret is how to die. Since the beginning of time, the secret had always been how to die. (laughs) And uh, you already know that uh, Terrence and many others, including myself, have long said that using psychedelic medicines uh, helps one learn how to die. Now, I realize this isn't really a big deal, but it was a fun synchronicity for me, if you want to call it that. And I also uh, suppose that it's worth mentioning once more that uh, from my own personal experience, and after talking with many, many other people who have had a good number of psychedelic experiences, uh, none of us seem to have had quite the level of visual images that uh, Terence seemed to have. So, if you do journey into Entheo space someday and uh, don't find the fabulous cities and machines that he describes, well, don't despair. Uh, it isn't all that common, is what I've learned. You know, as I was uh, listening with you just now when Terence was talking about how similar he felt his childhood experiences of poor sight, uh, poor eyesight, and uh, being a bookworm paralleled those of Aldous Huxley, I had to also marvel at the irony of other parts of their lives. Not only did they both die from cancer, both of their archives were destroyed by fire. In uh, Huxley's case, uh, he lost everything except for the then-unfinished manuscript of his last novel, Island, uh, along with three suits, which meant that uh, over 4,000 books with his personal annotations in the margins were all lost, along with the manuscripts for uh, what now fills uh, six volumes of essays and a dozen novels. And, uh, as you know, all of Terence McKenna's manuscripts and uh, huge library and works in progress when he died were all lost to fire as well. The parallels are uh, quite amazing, actually. You know, it's uh, like we're all trapped in some kind of a game, but whomever created it got lazy and uh, used some of the same storylines more than once with only a few variations here and there. And uh, if that's the case, then... uh, What previous storyline is your life following these days? And uh, are you sure you like it? Or uh, might it be time to change your story? Hmm. Interesting questions, but uh, I'm afraid I don't have any answers to them. Uh, Hey, that part's up to you. Well, I think I already mentioned that the entire recording of this lecture runs about four hours long, and uh, I'll play the next part of it in my next podcast, which uh, I hope to get out in a, in a few days, uh, because I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of it myself. Now, I guess that's about it for today, but before I go, I do want to give a shout-out to Dustin Cantwell and his friends up in Nelson, Canada, where uh, he can be heard every Sunday night on Kootenay Co-op Radio. And one of the reasons I've been thinking about those fellow saloners up there is that uh, they are also uh, just about at ground zero for the current Winter Olympics. And while I haven't had a chance to watch many events, I did pay attention to one sport where uh, we have a local hometown boy who was uh, favored to win a gold medal. And you know how local pride can get you involved in something... uh, even when you've never met the people involved. And uh, so I did watch a few hours of the programming that was uh, coming out of Vancouver this past week. So uh, now it's time for my grumpy old man alert because uh, I managed to have an attack of the grumpies while watching one of the medal ceremonies that came on. And here's my complaint. These young athletes spend more time training than I can even conceive of, and all for the possibility of getting that gold medal. But then what happens once it's placed around their necks? They have to stand through the playing of some nation's national anthem. What the fuck, you know? It wasn't a nation that skied down the mountain the fastest or skated the best. It was that individual athlete. So why all the nationalism? Okay, I I know the standard answer and the history of the Olympics and all that, but for me that still doesn't justify bringing nationalism into the games. My suggestion is that uh, they should play the favorite song of whomever won the gold medal. Hey, it's their moment. Let them enjoy the music they like best, that's what I say. Then I'd probably try to watch every one of the medal ceremonies just to uh, hear what kind of music these athletes like to listen to. You it know, would sure round out their images a little better, don't you think? Okay, that should end my grumpiness for a while. And, uh, oh yes, our hometown boy uh, did quite well. Got his gold for a second time, and uh, you probably heard of him. His name is Sean White, and uh, we're as proud as punch that he won, whatever that means. Well, that'll do it for now, and uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and uh, most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space.